0: Morning. I did uh, Google pronounce some of these words, some of the Pharisees' names, but now I can't remember. So anyway, <laughs> so it might come out a bit funny. I think maybe only a few people might pick up on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this scripture comes from Acts five twenty-eight to 42. Saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in, in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, "Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're continuing this series through the book of Acts and looking at things that took place and, and conversations and dialogue and sometimes sermons. And so we, we're jumping ahead here a little bit, this passage that you read, to, to get to this section. So I want to fill you in and what's taken place to get to this point. If you remember last week, we ended where they pray for boldness. And then what happens is we get to see, so if you want to, you can turn in your Bibles or your devices, Acts chapter 4, and we'll do 4 and 5 today. We see what takes place as they begin to have everything in common. And that seems idyllic, it seems amazing, it seems like something we would want to attain to. But it's interesting, I just want to point out why that happened Uh, In Acts chapter 4... First 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. Then it says there were no needy, and they gave to one another Some sold property and gave to each other. Those who didn't have any had some because those who had much would give more. It was because of the power of the resurrection. (laughs) That's the key there, that the grace that was upon them to do these things, to live in community in this very way, was because the resurrection, living in the newness of Christ. Then we have this interesting story uh, of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira had some land. They decided to sell that land. They conspired together to say let's only give part of it, but let, uh, part of the money we've earned, but let's tell them that we've given them all of it. And we see Ananias and Sapphira die. And I don't know that it is ever implicitly preached this way, but for whatever reason, in my mind, I always believe them dying was an act of God right at that moment. That they come in and they lie and then they are struck down by God. And so it was striking to me this week as I continued to read over this passage that I was putting something up on the text that is not there at all. We don't see in this text them saying, and God struck them down. We don't see in this text that even Peter who is there says, this happened and God did it. it, It's good for us just to slow down here for a minute and see what actually is taking place. So Ananias comes in and he says, we sold this property and this is the land, this is the money that we got. And Peter looks at him and he says, is that true? (laughs) He says, are you really saying that's true? In, In verse four, he says, while it remained unsold, he tells them, while it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard this words, he fell down and breathed his last. And then his wife comes in and they ask her, if you look down in verses 8, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, I did. And she said, the men that are standing here who buried your husband, are right here, they know that you're lying, and when she immediately heard this, she fell to her feet and breathed her last. And Peter doesn't say, See, that's what God did. No, we actually don't know exactly what took place there, however, I would suggest that if in that circumstance you're standing before those who have walked with Jesus and they have told you the depth of the depravity of your heart, your response might be to die. Your response might be that you're so shocked, so unbelievably undone that you die. Now, I'm not saying that's what it says either. What I'm saying, historically, what we know is they went in, they lied, and they were called out. And after they were called out, they died. And then we see many signs and wonders continue to happen. And we see the apostles going to Solomon's porch outside the temple, and they're preaching. And again, those that are in charge of the temple despise that. So they take them captive, and they put them in jail. And while they're in jail, an angel comes and lets them out. And the men come to get them, to take them to trial, and they see that the doors are still locked, that everybody's still present except those men. And they go, where are they? I don't know. Let's go look for them. And they go and find them in the temple preaching again. And so they call them forth, and that's where we're at here in this particular passage. They bring them forward to them, and they begin to say to them, we've strictly charged you not to preach about this man. We've asked you over and over again, stop spreading the name of Jesus. And they've added something this time and putting his blood on us. And Peter does yet again a little mini sermon. And he says to them, look, we cannot obey you. We must obey God. So that boldness is taking place. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. And God has exalted him to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Again, recognize, where's the power to do all this coming from? The resurrection. The one who came and died and rose again. And they say we are witnesses. It makes them so angry, they decide right then and there it's time to kill them. But there is a Pharisee. Who I won't even pretend to pronounce the name. Who is highly respected. And it almost seems as if he is giving very godly counsel. He says, Look, guys, we've had uprisings before. Remember, good old Thaddeus, or Thaddeus he came, he gathered about 400 people, he died, they scattered. Remember, Judas? He said he was important, he gathered people around him, he died, and they scattered. What he's saying there is, remember Jesus? He got lots of people to follow him. He's dead. Let's see what happens. Because then he says, look, if this is human, it will fail. It will will run its course, and then it will be done. But if it's from God then it doesn't matter because God's will will be accomplished. Now that's where it sounds like he's being really godly. Like a follower. He recognizes that if God is doing something, you can't battle against it. It will be accomplished in the way that God wants it to be accomplished. So he says, just hold back." And they decide to do that. But they bring them in and they beat them first. And then they release them out. And as they're going out... What does it say they are feeling? It says that then they left their presence in the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day they continued to go to the temple and house to house. They did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus, that the Messiah has come. Many of you like comfort? Let's be honest. I'm a comfort person, I'm a comfort eater. I, I I want to make sure that I feel good. If I have something that is going wrong in my life, the first thing I want to do is have it stop so that I don't have to feel the pain or the sorrow or the struggle. Or the shame that might come from that thing that might be going on. I I want to feel comfortable. I I want to know that I am like covered up with a warm blanket and just, oh, yeah. There's no troubles anymore. I think that's what the G-man here is doing. I think that's what this Pharisee that has such good wisdom is doing. He's avoiding conflict. He's like, look, here's the deal. If we bring him in and kill them now, I want you to remember how many people were out in the temple courts that you dragged them away from. I want you to remember that they saw you drag them away and put them in jail, and now they're out preaching again. I want you to remember that they've got a following. And we don't want to take them out at this moment because it could cause more of an uprising than it's worth our trouble. So if we just set back and wait, and just to make sure you guys will do what I want you to do, that you'll walk along with me in avoiding conflict and moving to comfort, I'm going to spiritualize it for you and say, and God is good. That's what he does there. He basically says, look, if it's God's deal, God's going to make make it happen, and we can't fight against it. So we might as well just sit back and relax and be comfortable and avoid the conflict. But we see that the apostles have a different posture. Their posture is to count it worthy of suffering. Their posture is to say, Comfort is not our desire, but to honor God, we will withstand discomfort. And so for those of us who walk in Christ, that is a call for us in this passage. The call for us is to move away from seeking our comfort and to move towards discomfort in the area of proclaiming and living our life for Christ. Now, there are theologies that teach out there that if you follow Christ, then everything's going to be all right in your life. You will prosper and be successful, and there will be no harm that will come to you. Well, that's just not reality. We see that every day. We are called to walk in discomfort as we follow Christ because it is antithetical. It is opposite of the way the world seeks. We in the world, in our flesh, want comfort. But what we see emulated in these men is to seek for righteousness, which leads to discomfort. Perhaps... You look at this and go, yeah, yeah, that's great. And I've got enough suffering, Lee. (laughs) And most of it has not come on me by what I've done. Cool that the apostles want to say we're honored for doing this because they're the ones speaking it. Yes, that's true. Suffering does come upon us through other means than just our own actions. The world and its brokenness and people that we encounter can tear us down and break our hearts. Death will creep in and disease will come around the corner when we least expect it. And so the question becomes for us that in those moments, in those times, what do we see? Do we seek to make sure that that pain ends as quickly as possible? That makes logical sense, doesn't it? Or do we walk into the pain to walk through the pain in order that God will receive glory and we will be restored to wholeness? We can't do that. We can't do that. Our heart inclination when we are in the flesh, walking away from Christ, is to always seek comfort. It's to always make sure that I'm taken care of and my desires are met. But if, in fact, from this passage, we're supposed to move to a place that counts it an honor to suffer, then we must first see those, the one who suffered for us. Their proclamation is about the resurrection, but the resurrection does not happen without the crucifixion. And Jesus, the one who lived in majesty and in perfection and who could not suffer anything, moved to earth so that he could take on all of humans. The Bible teaches us over and over again that Christ is the substitute for us in that he moves into the place of being our suffering so that we can move into the place of holding our suffering as an honor. Now, just a quick aside. Sometimes your suffering comes by your own actions and your own desire to have your own way. Now when that comes, that suffering is not there just to bring glory to God. That suffering is there to remind you of the bondage that your selfishness will bring about. It is there to remind you that there is a place that when I am left to my own devices, when I set myself on the throne of my heart, I am in rebellion so much so that it will cause me to become a prisoner. A prisoner to whatever desire I had sought comfort in. How do I know that's true? Because I still can't get rid of Reese's peanut butter cups in my life. I'm so angry that they got imported to the great country of Australia. I know that to be true because I just can't seem to stop. Even though I know it doesn't give me any benefit except for that one sweet moment that it hits my lips. And then I think, James is going to ask me if I've eaten any of these. Because I've asked him to. My kids are going to get in the car and they're going to see the 15 rappers sitting in the side <laughs> still. But whatever that small thing was, whatever that thing that caused me to think, just one that will make me feel better. If I had turned to the one who had taken all suffering and said, in this moment, I need you, and perhaps dialed James to ask him to keep me from doing it, because sometimes we need those helps then I wouldn't have to deal with the shame and the bondage that comes after. Now, here's the benefit for us in this. That as God moves in our life and transforms our heart and calls us to this place of going, wait a minute, wait a minute, comfort is not the most important priority for me. But following Christ is the most important priority for me. And in that, I might have discomfort. I will have discomfort discomfort, but God's love is sufficient and good enough to walk with me through that and that I will see God magnified and I will receive the comfort from Him. And how great it is that it's not a comfort that's just here. Th- Right? Not just, a, oh, God loves you and that should be comfort enough. No. He puts us with other people who can walk along with us. See, that's the great thing about what we saw before. They had everything in common. They were walking and sharing life together. They were in a community of faith that said, we are one. And so they were there when they were walking through that discomfort. And in the end, then, we can say, it is an honor for us as we lift up Christ to be uncomfortable so that we can rest firmly in his comforting embrace. Let me pray for us. Father, if there is anything that's not from you today, we just ask that you will burn it up, that it will go away. But if something is from you today, Lord, we just ask that it will take root in our hearts and it will bear good fruit for you. May you receive glory and honor in this. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond.